But we should be aiming for something more than that. We should be aiming for holiness. We should be aiming to, to get as close to God as we possibly can, that we can hear his voice when he speaks, that we would know his will. And as we go on that path to holiness, what happens is that inevitably we will enter into what St. John of the Cross called a dark night of the soul. What uh, the monk in the, who wrote the book, The Cloud of Unknowing, he referred to it as when he prayed, it felt like his prayers were hitting the ceiling and not going anywhere. Inevitably, as we are seeking holiness, as we are drawing closer to God, we are going to go through these dark periods, these valley time periods. And it's those periods when we need to remember those mountaintop experiences the most. So if we cannot verbalize our testimony, if we cannot verbalize what God has done in our lives, we're not going to have anything to look back on when we don't feel God and say, but wait, I remember when God was there. And last week you got to hear Melody come up and do her first sermon as she shared her testimony and how God is working in her life. And as she verbalizes that, as she's sharing her testimony with more and more people and she's seeing God work more and more, inevitably when that time comes, when she just feels distant, again, she'll be able to look back on these times and remember when God showed up in her life. So today, though, we are going from remembering to reassurance. We're still going through this rewind series. We're remembering what God has done in our lives. And now we're going to talk about how we can be reassured that God is in our lives. That uh, if we are living for Christ, then we are not living in vain. So would you open up with me to 1 Corinthians 15? We're going to read uh, verses 12 through 20. And if you would stand with me as we read the word of God, remembering that this is not just another book, this is God's word. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that you care enough about us, that you gave us your word, that we may know you, that we may 
draw near to you. Father, pour your spirit out on this place. We pray that you would reveal to us the message you have for us from your word today. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. But ultimately, do a mighty work in each of our lives. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we talk about our reassurance and we talk about this passage, we want to begin by talking about what are the questions from this passage? What are the the questions that the Corinthians had? Why was Paul writing this letter to the church? So Paul Paul had spent a great deal of time in Corinth, about a year and a half, and he had founded this church. Then he heads back out to continue on his missionary journey, carrying the good news to other cities. Paul would go from city to city sharing the gospel. But while Paul is sharing the gospel in another town, he gets word that things in Corinth are getting pretty bad. So that is why Paul is writing this letter. Now there were five issues in Corinth at the time, and Paul will address each one of those issues, and he will also respond to each issue with some parts of the story of the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus Christ. Paul will go on to show how they are not really living according to what they say they believe. So even though they say they believe, they are not living as though they do. And I'll tell you, as we go through these questions, if none of these seem familiar to you, then you have blinders on. Because these letters could be written to our churches today. So the first issue that Paul talks about is the division in the church. People have decided to follow preachers instead of the Savior. Paul says, some of you follow Paul, some of you follow Apollo, some of you follow Peter. Again, does this sound familiar today in our churches? Do we follow people instead of Jesus? But Paul says it isn't about any people. The foundation of the church must be Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The second issue that Paul talks about was sexual immorality. Paul had heard that some people in the church were not only engaging in sexually immoral practices, but they were doing so, they were doing so openly and saying it's fine, it's okay to do this. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says this to them, You are proud of this? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? You see, the church is saying that God's grace is big enough to cover all of it. It doesn't matter how we live or what we're doing because God's going to forgive us anyways. God's grace is big enough to cover all of it. But then Paul goes on to say this. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. Food for the stomach and stomach for for food but God will destroy them both. Neither one matters, they're saying. The body doesn't matter. 
But Paul responds with this, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So Paul says, it's not fine what you're doing. He says, Jesus died for your sins, and so if you're a Christian, then how you live is the main way in which we respond to Jesus' love and grace. Remember Romans 12, 1, when Paul urges us to offer our bodies up as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is our true and proper worship. How we live matters. And Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians that if Jesus has redeemed our bodies now and in the future, then what we do with our bodies matters. The third issue he addresses was uh, food that had been offered to idols. People were divided on whether or not they should be eating this food that had been offered as sacrifices in the local temples. Paul says, look, our allegiance is to Jesus Christ, our Lord, not to any little G gods. We believe that God is the creator of all things, including that animal, and that these idols are nothing more than wood and stone. So if you want to eat the meat and there's nobody around who might misunderstand your actions, then eat the meat. But... If there are people around who might be led astray by this action, then you know what? Leave it alone. It's not that important. You'll be okay. That meat isn't worth causing someone else to stumble. Ultimately, Paul is telling them that the core principle in all things is love. Love will deny itself and look out for the well-being of other people. God's love is at the core of the gospel. It's what Jesus did when he died for us, and therefore it is what we should do for others. After addressing the food issue, Paul begins to address the issues that were going on during their meetings or their services, as we would call them today. People were, once again, using their liberty to create distractions during the church service. From how they were dressing to their abuse of the Lord's Supper and also the use of spiritual gifts in an unchristlike manner. And Paul reminds them that the purpose for their gatherings, he reveals to them what kind of behaviors were inappropriate and how we can be working together to create a place where the Spirit of God can be working through everyone in a unified manner. Ultimately, Paul once again concludes that the highest value in their service should be the same central concept that we talked about a minute ago, which is that central to the gospel message is God's love. God's love ought to be compelling each person in that service to act and use their gifts in such a way that they are seeking and serving the well-being of others. Not for their own glory, not to be praised for their gifts or what they can do, but to use those gifts for the well-being of others. And then finally, Paul addresses the topic that we have been discussing last week and today, 
the resurrection. The church in Corinth was beginning to doubt that there was a resurrection. And they doubted that we will be, that they would be resurrected. Some were even saying that the whole idea of a resurrection was ridiculous. And that believers would not be resurrected. Paul reacts to this attitude in the church in a big way. He says in no uncertain terms, the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, he said. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then our preaching is useless. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then we are false witnesses. If there is no resurrection of the dead, our faith is useless. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then we are still in our sins. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we of all people are to be pitied. Do you think maybe Paul was a little bit passionate about the resurrection? None of it matters apart from the resurrection. And Paul continues, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And it is because of his resurrection that Paul answered all of the above questions the way he did. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have a reason to be united. Because Jesus had been raised from the dead, we have a reason to maintain sexual and just generally moral integrity. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have a source of power for loving others more than ourselves. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have a hope for victory over death. This is why the resurrection was and is so important. Because of the importance of the resurrection, Paul, in our passage from last week, pointed them to the evidence that Jesus had, in fact, been raised from the dead. Paul pointed to people who were still alive at the time as evidence of the resurrection. Like, go and ask them. See if they don't tell you the same thing. Sadly, today, we don't have that same opportunity but that doesn't mean that we don't still have the evidence. So let's look at some of the evidence we have about Jesus' resurrection, that we may be reassured that our faith is not in vain. Because if Jesus was resurrected, we have the hope that we too will be resurrected. First, we have those people that Paul used as evidence. Peter, the 12 apostles, the 500 who saw Jesus resurrected. And Paul even says, look, most of them are still alive, so you are free to ask them yourself. And then James, and finally, Paul reminds us that he himself had seen Jesus risen. Now also in the Bible, we see that Jesus appeared to some of the women who were with them. And throughout the Gospels, we see that over and over, Jesus appeared to the disciples. But I know what non-believers will say. Well, the Bible says that. But so what? 
you know, the Bible can't prove the Bible. It's a circular argument. But we have more than that from the early church. We have Tacitus, who was a Roman historian and a senator, who referred to Jesus, his execution by Pontius Pilate, and the existence of early Christians in Rome in his final work, The Annals. The Annals is kind of the a history book of the Roman Empire. And he's writing about the period of time where Nero was being blamed for the fire in Rome. All of you know how Nero played the fiddle while Rome burned, right? Nero was being blamed for that fire that consumed Rome. So Nero did what, well, he did what politicians still do today. He redirected the blame, made some distractions so people would forget about what had happened. So he shifted the blame to the Christians. And this is what Tacitus writes in the annals. To get rid of the report, so to get rid of those rumors, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. That mischievous superstition that Tacitus mentions there refers to the belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead. It was mischievous because, as we'll see in a minute, the Romans believed that the Christians had stolen Jesus' body. So it doesn't say that Tacitus believed Jesus had been resurrected. But this does show that there was a general understanding around the empire that the Christians believed Jesus had been resurrected. This is proof of the Bible where the church believed in the resurrection of Christ. It wasn't something that was made up a couple hundred years later by a group of men who got together and were picking and choosing what books they wanted to put together into the Bible. It wasn't changed in the scripture by scribes. It wasn't added in. Tacitus was from the time the Bible was written, shortly after. This was the belief of the very earliest church. We also have the Nazarene inscription. Now, you know I'm a big fan of archaeology. So this is the Nazarene inscription. This is an interesting archaeological discovery which also lends early support to the biblical accounts of the resurrection. The Nazareth inscription is a marble tablet with Greek writing that has been dated to approximately 41 AD. The inscription is likely an abbreviated form of an edict called a rescript from Emperor Claudius. Now before we go any further, I want to be completely honest with you, as with all archaeological finds, there's debates on the dating. They're pretty confident it went somewhere from 50 BC to 50 AD, but there's really good evidence and support that this was written by Claudius or an edict of Claudius because of other edicts that Claudius had written. 
So I'll, you can look this up, you can look up the different arguments, but the, the main one that I found on Biblical Archaeology uh, Society um, had a really good argument for why this would be Claudius, why this would be dated, dated into the 40 ADs. So what this says, because I assume that you can't read Greek like me, you can't read Greek, nor can I read Greek, I mean, not like I can read Greek, no. <laughs> but what this says is, Edict of Caesar. <clears throat> it is my decision concerning graves and tombs, whoever has made them for the religious observances of parents or children or household members, that these remain undisturbed forever. But if anyone legally charges that another person has destroyed or has in any manner extracted those who have been buried or has moved with wicked intent those who have been buried to other places, committing a crime against them, or has moved sepulcher-sealing stones against such a person, I order that a judicial tribunal be created." Just as is done concerning the gods in human religious observances, even more so will it be obligatory to treat with honor those who have been entombed. You are absolutely not to allow anyone to move those who have been entombed. But if someone does, I wish that violator to suffer capital punishments under the title of tomb breaker. There's a lot of words in there that hopefully you know the New Testament, you've read the Bible enough that they should have stuck out to you as what we see in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the wording of this particular find indicates that the message of the resurrection, or at least the Jewish, pop, the Jewish response to it, had been brought to the emperor's attention within about 10 years of the event. In just 14 brief lines, this rescript explains a new law carrying capital punishment for anyone who would move a body from graves or tombs to another place with wicked intent, perhaps such as to start a new religion. That is, no one was permitted to move an entombed body for fraudulent reasons. So it should be obvious why this is intriguing. But even more so when we think about Matthew 28, when the response of the Jewish leaders to the resurrection was to bribe the Roman soldiers to say, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Because why would the Roman emperor issue an edict forbidding the moving of a body with fraudulent intent. Sure, there were grave robbers at the time, but they weren't generally concerned with the bodies, right? They just wanted what was with the bodies. So unless something happened significant, it's hard to imagine a reason the emperor himself would make such an edict. And more evidence, and this is always my favorite evidence, or to me the most powerful evidence, is the believers who were readily accepting martyrdom because of their faith in the resurrection. 
One of those people was Ignatius of Antioch. Now, Ignatius of Antioch was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he knew John. Ignatius would have known probably many in that early Christian community. And this is what Ignatius writes in his letter to the Trillians. But if, as some of them are without God, that is, the unbelieving say, that he only seemed to suffer, they themselves only seeming to exist, then why am I in bonds? Why do I long to be exposed to the wild beast? I should mention that Ignatius was on his way from Antioch to Rome to be martyred, and he had, it had been determined that he was going to be fed to the wild, wild animals in the Colosseum. So why do I long to be exposed to the wild beast? Do I die therefore in vain? Am I not then guilty of falsehood against the cross of the Lord? And then he goes on a little bit farther. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But as for me, I do not place my hopes in one who died for me in appearance only, but in reality. For that which is false is quite abhorrent to the truth. Mary then did truly conceive a body which had God inhabiting it. Jesus truly was born of Mary. He truly lived in the womb of Mary just like we do did. He truly was born just like each of us were born. He truly did eat real food and drink real drinks just like we did, he goes on to say. And then he continues. He was baptized by John really baptized by John, not just in appearance. And when he had preached the gospels for, gospel for three years and done signs and wonders, he who himself was the judge was judged by the Jews, falsely so-called. And by Pilate the governor, he was scourged, was smitten on the cheek, was spit upon. He wore a crown of thorns and a purple robe. He was condemned He was crucified in reality, not in appearance, not in imagination, not in deceit. He really died and was buried and rose from the dead. Even as he had prayed in a certain place, saying, But do thou, O Lord, raise me up again, and I shall recompense them. Ignatius is also fighting against the idea that the resurrection didn't really occur. That it wasn't really Jesus on that cross or that he didn't really bodily resurrect. Ignatius says he did raise from the grave. And this is why I am willing to give my life for him because I know that there is a resurrection from the dead. And I know that I too will be resurrected from the dead. You see, there is plenty of evidence for the resurrection. Even 2,000 years later, we can still see it, we can still find it through the, the writings of those who were there, the responses of those who didn't believe, and most convincingly, through the responses of those who did believe 
and were therefore willing to lay down their lives. As Peter said in chapter 1 of of 2 Peter, we do not follow cleverly devised fables. We can trust God's word. And for the scoffers that Peter talks about who mockingly say, where is he? Why has he not yet returned? We can respond as Peter did and tell them, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. No, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Why hasn't he returned yet? Maybe because you have not yet accepted him. Maybe he has shown his patience for you, but how long? How long till he comes back? Because the day will come and is coming and the Lord will appear and he will, as we recite in the Apostles' Creed, judge the living and the dead. So what does this mean for you? Peter went on to say that because everything will be destroyed in in the way he describes it in the passage, because everything will be destroyed, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day when Jesus returns. Paul in 1 Corinthians showed how the Corinthians were not actually living out what they said they believed. If we believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, then we have a reason to put aside petty differences and be united If we believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, then we have a reason to maintain moral integrity. If we believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, then we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us and therefore should be bearing the fruit that allows us to love others more than we love ourselves. And if we believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, then we have a hope for victory over death. And we shouldn't fear anything in this life. If we are living the way we say we believe, we should fear nothing in this life. Be reassured, Jesus did raise from the dead, and one day we too will be raised from the dead. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, again, we thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, help each one of us to feel that assurance, to understand that assurance, Father, to know that we have that assurance through your death and resurrection, Lord Jesus. And let us not fear what man may do to us, but let us fear only the one who can destroy both our body and our soul. Lord, speak to us today and work in us today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.